I'm Alyssa. I'm Alyssa. And I am not Alyssa. This is 52 Women, the official podcast of the Montgomery County, Maryland chapter of the National Organization for Women. So, welcome everyone. I am obsessed with the Olympics, um, <laughs> as I am every two years and have been since I was a child. And then it was every four years because they switched things. Um, so, we're recording. It's Thursday, February 15th, so I'm sure things will happen over the next few days, but wanted to start... Or the next few hours. The next few hours. Figure <laughs> um, skating. Um, but wanted to start out by, like, sharing with everyone that we actually have a Montgomery County native uh, at the Olympics. Um, Haley Skrupa is on the U.S. women's hockey team, which they generally kick ass every year. Now, we haven't won... A gold medal since I think in 1998 but we generally get silver to Canada which is still good yeah um but I thought that was pretty cool that we had a woman and you know typically women hockey players aren't aren't common um so I just thought it was cool and, and I, I actually love about this Olympics I know a lot of people are disappointed because the N- the NHL wouldn't let NHL players go play for the men's team so the men's team is like Um, there's a guy, Brody Stevens, who's a comedian. The three of them are on it 
together. Um, and he called her a hot little hot piece of ass, this 17 year old young woman. Um, they're talking about sports and when they get to her, uh, he, first of all, he says he's on Twitter and he sees Chloe Kim and he thinks of Chloe Kardashian and Kim Kardashian. Okay. Even though Chloe's not spelled the same. And he says, I don't even want to deal with that. So I don't even like, he scrolled by it. He didn't even know who she was because he was convinced it was a Kardashian story. Every time it popped up on his Twitter feed, um, and or, sorry, that wasn't him. That was Stevens who said that part. And then um, Brayden, who's the baseball player, says Chloe Kim, famous for riding a different board than Kim Kardashian. Uh, and then Connor says, no doubt. And in fact, just to keep on that tip, her 18th birthday is April 23rd, and the countdown is on, baby, because I got my Wooderson going. That's what I like about them high school girls. Okay. And Steven says, I love it, Pecan. I'm right there with you. Connor says, she's fine as hell. And if she was 18, I wouldn't be ashamed to say that she's a little hot piece of ass. And she is. So apparently you're not ashamed to say when she's 17 either. She's adorable. I'm a huge Chloe Kim fan. And then they're all, Brayden's laughing. That's it. Steven's is laughing. Did you just take a boner pill? Um, so where they're talking about these other guys in terms of their athletic accomplishments, this woman who is incredibly accomplished in her sport and incredibly poised for a person her age uh, is being reduced to a sex object uh, for these three. And actually, the, the article in Deadspin makes Connor seem like the worst one because he calls her a fine piece of ass. Yeah. But really, they're all pretty bad. I mean, it's, it's a pretty terrible conversation. Um, for them to have so just I don't know just gross that you can accomplish so much at the age of 17 and you've won a gold medal and this is you're still seen as as a sex object and like this uh, now I heard this and I don't know how accurate it is so do not don't yell at me if you fact check and it's totally wrong but what I had (laughs) heard was that she so she's 17 so the last you have to be 15 and so many months to go to the Olympics Mm -hmm. or something. She was so good at the four years ago. She could have gone if she wasn't 13. Yeah. So she is amazing. She's that good. And to just say, Oh, reminds me of a Kardashian, which let's just, yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. Well, and they, I mean, yeah, they had, they had time to uh, sexualize, and, and demean Kim Kardashian and Chloe yes, Kim in, like, in a just, very brief time. Still want to know what Kim Kardashian did to everybody, but hey. Yeah. Um. So, yeah. Thanks. Are, is one of them fired yet? I don't think so. I don't I don't know. Um, oh, yeah. Patrick Connors fired. He was fired on the yesterday. Fired yesterday night. So, this story came out on Tuesday, and then he was fired yesterday night. The story has been updated since I first read it. But yeah, because I was looking at yeah. it today, and I was February fourteenth like, oh. at five thirty p.m. <laughs> <sighs> so yeah, I mean, come on, come on, come on. This is why we can't have nice things. And like, I, I, yeah, just disgusting. And EB one, you also had an Olympic story you wanted to share. Um. Yeah. So, Adam Rippon and Gus. Kenworthy are getting lots of uh, news for being 
what everyone's saying is the two openly gay athletes on the U.S. team. Um, but there, there's actually a woman who's on the U.S. team who's in this Olympics as well, Brittany Bow. Um, she is also an LGBTQIA individual. Um, she has a girlfriend who, Brittany Bow is a speed skater, and she's dating a speed skater from um, another country. I forget which country at the moment. Um, but Sweden, nobody. I think. Okay, yeah, sure. Um, but nobody's acknowledging that as well as breaking ground as well. Um, it's just the two guys who are pretty much getting all the media um, around that. And that kind of goes along with what we were talking about last week um, about how the media always turns to certain narratives when it comes to uh, LGBTQIA plus individuals um, leaves a, a lot of people out and, and a lot of people don't get to see themselves represented because the media doesn't report on the stories. I'm sure unless somebody saw this one article I could find in uh, LGBTQ Nation, um, do they even know that she she is a lesbian? I, I doubt it. Yeah, and I wonder, I mean, I've heard a lot of press about Adam Rippon, and I did actually get to watch him skate. Well, he got in a Twitter fight with Mike Pence. Right, like, and that's what I was going to say. But even before he went to the Olympics, yeah, like, he was on, um, he was on some NPR midday show. I don't know if it was Fresh Air or if it was 1A. It might have been 1A. Yeah. And he was talking, and this was before they went, about how, like, there was... I hate using this word, but there was beef between him and Mike Pence before. He was saying stuff about Mike, Mike Pence before. So I'm not giving anybody the benefit of the doubt here. Like, that's, like, you know, bullshit. Um, but, like, a little part of me wondered, like, is this, like, the squeaky wheel gets the grease or something? Yeah. Um, but I know, like, they made a big deal out of him... Um, starting something with Mike Pence and it's like well okay just because you're gonna fight with Mike Pence doesn't mean that the other people shouldn't get recognition yeah well that other guy I don't I'm I haven't watched the Olympics at all so I'm not even sure what sport he competes in but Gus Kenworthy has been in the news a lot also I'm not I don't know that he's talked about Mike Pence but I think he took a picture with Adam or something so everyone's like oh look well, they took a picture and they they said, "We're here. We're queer. Get used to it." They they labeled it themselves. Yeah, he's a skier. I think that's the picture. Um, but yeah, I mean, I didn't I didn't know about her until you said it. Yeah, Alyssa. Yeah. Like she's apparently been posting on <clears throat> social media like about her partner um, for months, like. This one Instagram photo of the two of them is from 32 months ago. So it's, like, not even a new thing. This article mentions, like, it's not her fault. Oh, no. Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. that she's not, like, trying to hide it or anything. She's right. been perfectly open with it. It's just nobody seems to notice. She seems like she's very, like, normal about it. I mean, it's a normal thing, but it's very much, like this is my partner, I'm going to post on social media, like, this is how we're going to be, like, you know, just, like, this is my everyday life, like, mm -hmm. and 
the other yeah are, it's not like a coming out it's photo. not in a, it's not a coming out photo it's just a like this is my life and and mm-hmm. the other two are kind of starting with Mike Pence and I don't I don't want to say drumming up controversy because I don't think it's controversial like what yeah. like at all you know they're Mike Pence does not like gay people and they're like yeah we're not gonna play nice with you I yeah I agree with this um but it's more of a I yeah I think it's like yeah and I don't think any of the three of them should let him no take pride in them or stand next to them in a picture like you can't can't say one thing out of one side of your mouth and then stand with gold medalists out of the other side yeah would lock you up in an internment camp right you should not go anywhere near that that's right um, but you should give equal representation across yeah. everyone. Yeah. I actually didn't know who, except Adam Rippon, I didn't know who the other two were. I didn't know who anybody was really coming in except, like, Adam Rippon and, and um, the, no, I can't think of her name, but the one female figure skater who hadn't made it last time, who made it this time, who landed the triple Lutz, <clears throat> the first American woman. Brady? Brit, Brandy? Brit, no. Mm-mm. I mean, I, did, I didn't know any. No, Mirai, Triple Axel. Yeah. Mirai. Yes, Mirai. Yes, thank you. Mirai. Oh, Triple Axel. Yes. Um, first I, woman since, first American woman. American woman. Tony Yeah. I didn't know any of them except for, and I think that's right. It's because yeah. of the media. Yeah. Yeah. He, he was in the media a lot, Adam Rippon. And I didn't even hear, that's something, oh, I didn't even think to talk about. Let's talk about Mirai. Mm-hmm. So she's the first American woman to land the Triple Axel in the Olympics. Tanya Harding was the first American woman to land a triple axel in competition. Majority Ito was the first woman in the world to land one in competition. Mm-hmm. But I think Tanya Harding is still the first woman to ever do it, period. Huh. Um, but Marat... Okay, Tanya Harding was 1993. 1994. Right. She never landed at the Olympics. Like, she fell on her ass at the Olympics. Yeah. She just broke down. Um, but it's like a huge, like... I feel like they should be making a bigger deal about it. Yeah. That's all. Like, oh, like one, she's one of eight women who's ever done it. Yeah. And, like, the men are doing quads, and the pairs are throwing people up in the but air. But they're falling like, on the quads. But they're, they're just yeah. getting points because they tried the they quad. Try, yes. Which, I'm The so, participation, participation trophy. Participation <laughs> trophy. <laughs> what? <laughs> doing the mat. Meanwhile, the Russian girls are jumping with their hands above their arms. I know. Their head. Amazing. So, but I feel like you should make more of a... Why aren't I hearing more about Mirai? Like, yeah. like this is a big freaking deal. Yeah, this is really, really hard. Tanya Harding will tell you how hard it is. Yeah. So, and it's not like women in other countries; all of them can do it. It's like two Americans and six Japanese ladies. Yeah, yeah. Or Russians can't even do it. Yeah. So it's just let's make let's celebrate her too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's great. But no, I knew. I. Like, I didn't know who anybody, but, like, until Alyssa sent that article, yeah, I, I, I had no idea who that was, either, let alone anything about her being out or anything. I went in knowing... Uh, well, and after Alyssa sent it, I yeah. searched it. Yeah. And, like, e- even after you sent it, Alyssa, and, like, it, it had obviously... Like, there were a couple places where I could see it had been picked up from the article you sent, mm-hmm. because it was, like, the exact wording, or... Yeah. Well, not almost the exact wording, paraphrase, like, but it was just, like, a minor thing... That was like added to some Olympic yeah. story. It wasn't like her own story, like with Adam Rippon. Yeah. Yep. I know that's we should just celebrate all of these women. Like, it's yeah. hard. It's really hard. It's hard. And I like 
you know who I knew going into the Olympics? Tara Lipinski and Johnny Weir. Oh my god, they're so good. <laughs> and and I love their Google commercials. <laughs> yeah. But like Tara Lipinski, I follow her on Instagram and like every piece of social media because I love Tara Lipinski. Um, but she like she is the youngest woman to ever gold medal yeah. in figure skating, and that was like in ninety ninety eight or a long time. Ago. I think yeah. But like she talks about like how hard this stuff is yeah. and like there was something that come out came out earlier this week someone said oh, figure skating is not a sport the hell it's not yeah i know like these people are like jumping yeah. and they're balancing women on one hand especially the couples where they have to jump yeah. together and like both of them have to do it right they'll get like yeah and they're flipping and they're like yeah. on like a blade like one blade like this is a sport i actually saw um i think it was John Lovett, maybe somebody, John Lovett is my, one of my favorite podcast hosts, and he's a gay man, and he's like, is it a thing that someday there will be two women skating together in couples, or I two wonder. men? He's like, is that a thing that can happen? I wonder. <laughs> like, and I was like, wow, that would be so different. It would be. And I wonder, look, biologically, women generally don't have as much upper body strength as men. You can work at it, and you you know, and if the other one... So I wonder if, like, that's physically possible. Or if they would just skate women's couples against each other. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it was a very interesting question. I was like, yeah, that's a... I would like to true. that. We still do that. Like, yeah. Ballroom dancing, I'm sure there exist competitions where... Yeah. People can enter same-sex couples now, but ice skating's different because of the strength yeah. you're talking about. Um, but I wonder ice dancing, because ice dancing, they don't... Right. They do, like, lifts, but they don't do as much... Huh. Right. And it does seem like just like dancing or theater, yeah, like a like a place where that that would be on the forefront of that kind yeah. of in, you know yeah. inclusion. Well, yeah. Uh, sorry, I, I read something right. that I can't remember where I read it, but I saw it since the Olympics, saying that like figure skating is still a very conservative sport, even though it's like sequence costumes and people doing shit on ice. Mm-hmm. They've got. I think, uh, Alyssa. I think you're right. Um, uh, to name drop Tanya Harding again, it like in her movie and then in some of her interviews, like they go into how like back in the day, like you had to be like Nancy Kerrigan. They were both poor. Mm-hmm. They were both poor. Yeah. But you don't know that looking at Nancy Kerrigan because Nancy Kerrigan got costumes donated by Vera, uh, Vera Wang. Yeah. And how and she got played up that way. And too. she got played up and. Where Tanya Harding was like dirt poor, mother had five husbands, like yeah, like like not an acceptable poor, right? And it was a Tanya Harding has said like they the U.S. Figure Skating Association told her like you're going to get back together with your husband or you're not getting on the team. So yeah. I believe it. I mean, I think I've heard in recent years because like. You couldn't come out as a gay man in figure skating. Yeah. Like, Brian Boitano was in the closet. Yeah. Like, Brian Boitano. Which is crazy. (laughs) So, I wonder, and I know they've started, like, you can now use words in your songs, and, like, Johnny Weir is very unabashedly, like, not straight. And not subdued at all. Right. But I wonder if it's, again, it's okay, we can showcase the man like this, but we're not going to have two women. So I, that's a yeah. good point. Well, and it's stereotypically a feminine sport, yeah. right? You think about men in that, who dance, men who do figure yeah. skating. Like, stereotypically, society thinks of that as a 
more effeminate man, whether he's gay yep. or not, versus a woman who's expected in those sports to be super graceful yep. and super feminine. And people can't, don't, for some, I mean, it's last, I know it's not funny because people face discrimination, yeah. but it's so weird to me that people could think that, like, because you're a lesbian, you can't be feminine. And because you figure skate, you have to be get. It's like a, it's such a strange. Well, the whole, the whole thing with, like, you, again, Nancy Harrigan, Tanya Harding. Nancy Harrigan was very graceful. Yeah. She was a ballerina. Like, Tanya Harding was a fucking athlete. Like, yeah, she's an athlete. athlete. Like, yeah. very athletic, very fast. And, like, I watch some of these skaters now, and I'm like, why are they skating so slow? Yeah. Like, what? it's like, oh, because I grew up watching Tanya Harding, like, zip around. Yeah. And that was a mark against her so it was like the so yeah yeah it's interesting my poor husband has had to watch so many hours of figure skating Um, (laughs) so many hours it's so good the ice dancing's actually been really good too yes the whole canadian team to moulin rouge oh my gosh so good the olympic committee had to tell them like hey how about we tone this down a little bit so again to Alyssa's point yeah right that's right it's like yeah it's yeah Weirdly conservative. It's a little risque on there. Yeah. All right. So sorry. It's my feminism in the Olympics. Woohoo! Hopefully, we won't have anything else to talk about next week when it comes to the Olympics. Yeah. Except good things. Yeah. Um, and then the other story. Um, well, one more thing about the Olympics. I yes, don't have like a story about this. I just saw a bunch of people posting. Ooh. Um, but. Apparently, all the announcers keep calling the adult women in the Olympics girls, and people are pissed about it. Huh. Oh, I would be pissed about yeah, that. Yeah, me too. Yeah. People are like, some woman, I have no idea what sport, I don't even know who they were talking about, but someone's like a mom with three kids, and they're just like, oh, such a good girl. I wonder if it's curling. I have no idea. I wonder. I have, I, I, all my friends are obsessed with curling. I'm just like... No. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. No, and I, one thing I was saying to Alyssa before we started recording is I haven't been watching on primetime. I've been watching like through my Roku on the app because I want to watch everybody figure skate. I don't want to just watch the Americans and the Russians. Yeah. Um, but the woman who is the announcer, if you watch the live feed, um, I at first thought she was Australian. My husband corrected me and said she might be from New Zealand. Either way, she usually does the Summer Olympics live feed. She is a joy to listen to because she is very, she's not as bitchy as Johnny and Tara, first of all, (laughs) which is not hard to be, but she explains it and she's always so positive, like, oh, they've been working hard at this and she doesn't call them girls. She calls them women. And, you know, so it's, it's an interesting educational experience if you can watch her because she goes more into, I think she's a coach. Yeah. And she goes more into that. Um, and she was the one who told me about the whole, they get more points if they try versus yeah. doing a perfect triple, you get more points if you try a quad. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So the other thing we wanted to talk about, and in, in this episode, we're actually going to have an interview this weekend with Delegate uh, Marse Morales. So yeah, second half of the podcast can be super interesting. Yes, but and I may actually ask her about this. But this um, story circulated um, a few weeks ago. Um, I first saw it on BuzzFeed, and I think other outlets picked it up. 
Long story short, there was a woman, and she's calling herself Anna, and I don't know if that's her real name, because she's 18, and she's a victim of sexual assault, so she might be using an alias. So, Anna was in a car with some of her friends, the cops came by, they picked her up. Um, there, there was weed in the car, What doesn't, doesn't matter for the story. The point is, the cops picked her up in a van, threw her in the back of the van, and Anna says that they took turns raping her, that one cop would drive, the other cop would rape her, they got, they stopped the the van, they switched, the other cop raped her, the other cop drove. And she went to the hospital, she, she reported this, they were plainclothes policemen, you know, um, says the detectives handcuffed her, they let her friends go, and then they, they put her in an unmarked police car. So... The gist of all this is it's basically turned into he said, she said, where the cops are saying, no, nope, this girl had wanted to have sex with us so she wouldn't get arrested. And they wound up not charging her. And what this brought to light, aside from the fact that these cops are absolute douchebags who raped an 18-year-old yeah, girl, yeah. Um, <laughs> aside from that, is that in 35 states, it is not illegal for a police officer to have sex with someone in their custody. So I could get picked up by a cop. He could rape me in, in the state of Maryland. Maryland is one of those 35 states. I could get pick up, picked up by a cop. He could rape me. He could let me go. And then when I report it, the answer could just be, well, she had sex with me because she didn't want to get charged. Yeah. And aside from the fact that it's ridiculous that it's not a law that cops can't have sex with people in their custody, it goes into the whole issue of consent. Like, you can't consent to anything if you were in police custody. Right. Like, you have to do what the cops tell you to do. Right. It's like being in the military. You have to do They have a gun. Yeah, they have handcuffs. There's a power. Like, if you don't do what they do, they can charge you with disobeying a police officer. So, like... There's and a police officer's answer there. If a girl, if a girl or a woman really does get is in their custody and says, "I will have sex with you if you let me go," the answer is no, no, bribery. I can't do yeah. that. <laughs> no, but <laughs> that, that's all. That's all there is. Like right. right, yeah. And that's the problem is that the law doesn't even. It doesn't even. Need, it should touch all that other stuff, but it doesn't even need to. It just yeah. needs to touch the fact that you're not allowed to accept that. Yeah. Yeah. As a bride. Yeah. So I'm going to ask, um, when, when, when we talk to Marissa this weekend, I'm, I'm going to ask, I'm going to ask her if there's any, cause this story just broke on February 7th was the Buzzfeed article. Um, so I'm going to ask her if there's any talks about this in the women's caucus. Cause I know they're doing a lot of work with sexual harassment and that sort of thing. Um, or if this may be, cause we have a short session in Maryland, maybe next year, but I'm going to see yeah. if she has anything on that and and this was all over social media so i'm sure people have seen it uh but just let's like terrifying yeah sneak peek of what we're talking about this weekend among other things yeah so february 21st we have a chapter meeting at davis library in bethesda um 7 30 to 9 um we have a chapter meeting slash treasure election on march 14th at the rockville library 7 30 um, then March 17th, we have our Women's History and ERA Now panel to celebrate uh, Women's History Month. 
So come out for that. You can get tickets on Eventbrite and also on Facebook. And we're going to be posting the link on our website soon. Um, and our website is MC for Montgomery County, MD for Maryland, now for National Organization for Women. We'll be posting it on our event calendar and also on the homepage. And our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, you can also find us at MCMD now. Tweet us about the podcast. If you have any topics you want us to talk about or Women of the Week suggestions, let us know. MCMD now. Um, and speaking of Women of the Week, uh, continuing on the Black History Month theme, this week's Woman of the Week is one of NOW's founders, Polly Murray. Polly was a civil rights and feminist activist, a lawyer, a poet, an author, and a teacher. Polly was born in Baltimore in 1910. She had a rough upbringing and lost both of her parents when she was young. Her mother died of a cerebral hemorrhage when Polly was four, and her father died when she was 13 from being beaten to death by a white guard at a mental institution where he was being treated. Eventually, Polly moved to North Carolina to live with her aunt. She dealt with her personal struggles by pursuing education. She attended Hunter College in New York, but had tried to attend Columbia University, which she was denied acceptance into because she was a woman. She graduated from Hunter with a bachelor's in 1933. In 1938, she famously campaigned to enter the University of North Carolina, which was an all-white school at the time, and the NAACP supported her case. She was not accepted, and it wasn't until a black man's acceptance 13 years later that the school started taking black students. Polly worked on civil rights and desegregation, and even was arrested in Virginia in 1940 for refusing to move to the back of the bus, which of course was 15 years before Rosa Parks was arrested for refusing to do so in Alabama. Polly attended Howard University's law school so she could become a civil rights lawyer. After graduating, she tried to continue her studies at Harvard Law, but was denied because, quote, you are not of the sex entitled to be admitted to Harvard Law School, according to a letter the school sent her. She wrote back to the school saying, quote, gentlemen, I would gladly change my sex to meet your requirements, but since the way to such change has not been revealed to me, I have no recourse but to appeal to you to change your minds on this subject. Are you to tell me that one is as difficult as the other? Polly would later co-author an article in which she coined the term Jane Crow to describe the double burden of racism and sexism. She ended up later becoming the first black student to receive a doctorate in law from Yale. The legal theories she put forth in regards to the 14th Amendment were used by her friend Ruth Bader Ginsburg to help advance women's rights in the 1970s. Polly was also friends with Eleanor Roosevelt, with whom she discussed the plights of working women, people of color, and poor people. She became advisors to both FDR and JFK. She served on JFK's Presidential Commission on the Status of Women and also argued sex discrimination cases. In 1965, she connected with Betty Friedan, who wrote The Feminine Mystique and was one of the most prominent feminists at the time, after giving a speech calling for women to march on Washington. The following year, Polly and Betty became two of the founders of the National Organization for Women. During the formative days of now, Polly envisioned the organization as an NAACP for women. Polly was a queer woman who sometimes labeled herself a man, though she never asked people to call her by male pronouns. She was gender non-conforming, had relationships with women, and was generally way ahead of her time in terms of gender and sexuality. 
Polly will be honored at the National Women's History Project Luncheon coming up here in D.C. in March. And there is a film about her coming out as well as a play that will tour multiple cities including D.C. Last year, her childhood home in Durham, North Carolina was designated a historic landmark. I'm going on a bike ride next week. Yes, I'm going a bike on a bike ride in February. That's going to be, although it's 70 degrees today, who so who knows? Um, but, global warming. Yeah, but one of the, um, the bike ride, is, it's called Strong Women Ride, and it's through the Washington Area Bicycling Association. But one of the highlights that they talk about is a lot of it is um, landmarks for Polly A. Murray. Polly, Polly A. Murray, except when the woman first said it, she has like a Canadian accent, so it sounded like polyamory, and I'm like, ooh, this is more of an open group than I thought it was, <laughs> but then I, then I like read it, and I was like, oh, gotcha, Polly A. Murray, <laughs> so I'm excited to see, um, and I'll definitely like update you guys, um, see what other women are going to be on the bike ride, but I'm, I'm excited, it's all around D.C., and they keep saying it's like traffic circles and landmarks, so maybe we'll see some. But Paul, um, Polly A. Murray was the headliner of the event, if you will. Cool. cool. Okay, so now we're going to go to uh, the interview with Maris A. Morales. I was fortunate enough to spend a lovely brunch with her, and then we um, talked about human trafficking, immigration, and some other things notable to Montgomery County, the state of Maryland, and the country these days. Okay, so as we discussed, we are here with Marcy Morales, delegate from the state of Maryland, and we're going to talk to her about a bunch of things. Um, she's hosting a women's rally on Monday, February 19th, and then she's also sponsoring several pieces of legislation. So. Welcome, Marise. Thank you for joining us for this. Um, so just to start off, we have talked about on our previous episode of our podcast about you spot sponsoring HB 461, which is SB 581 on the Senate side, sponsored by Victor Ramirez. I believe this is the U visa bill. Um, can you explain what's in the bill and why it's so important? Absolutely. First of all, thank you, Jenny Rose, for having me um, this afternoon. Um, so House Bill 461 has uh, actually been voted on and passed the House. This is our third time putting it in. Um, last year it got stuck on the Senate side, but um, the, what the bill does, it, it only creates a timeline for when a law enforcement agency has to return um, the certification of an applicant for a U visa. Um, so what does a certification mean? This does not, this bill does not go into, you know, the, the, the merits of why an applicant should or not receive a U visa to begin with. This, the certification process is only for the law enforcement agency to say, yes, this applicant was a victim of a violent crime, and yes, this applicant cooperated with law enforcement uh, you know, by pressing charges and throughout the invest, you know, the the investigation period. That is all. There, what we have seen is that Montgomery County um, and some of the kind of the Beltway jurisdictions um, have, you know, have a better understanding of, you know, what the certification process is. A lot of our, you know, state's attorneys agencies and our law enforcement agencies, they have a certification officer, whereas that structure does not necessarily exist across the state. And so, all this bill does is says that certification needs to be returned to the applicant within 90 days um, and just to 
kind of create a, you know, uh, just for the whole state, a statewide um, time limitation for that certification. Thank you. Um, and then can you, we, you were um, gracious enough to be a panelist on our first, first panel, the racist, racial justice panel. So can you talk more about the intersection between immigration legislation and human trafficking legislation? Absolutely. Um, so with, in regards with immigration and, and human trafficking, I think it's important that um, there is definitely an, an overlap there in terms of some of the vulnerable communities that we have seen being, you know, being targeted uh, for human trafficking purposes. But, you know, I don't want to confuse the issues. I don't want listeners to think that human trafficking is only seen you know, among and between immigrant populations. Human trafficking we have seen um, is right, you know, it's right inside of our communities. It's in our high schools, it's in the, the malls. Um, and, you know, the, the profile of a human trafficking victim, um, you know, I, it would be a disservice to the community for us to kind of, you know, pigeonhole um, just to the immigrant population. Um, so, you know, I would kind of separate those issues. I've been working on human trafficking. Um, for, this is our fourth year. We created a work group to look and actually look at the, the trends in human trafficking and kind of find the pockets within the state of Maryland. And we've seen um, up and down the 95 corridor uh, kind of hubs of where, you know, these kind of um, coerced uh, sex, you know, sexual uh, workers kind of are being either recruited or you know where like the hubs for where we're th- you know this practices ha- are happening and you know the the victims are you know are you know unfortunately I mean they, they've they I mean they grow it runs the gamut from age to race to I mean it's just the profile really is someone that's from a broken home um, oftentimes young you know not with not a, a sufficient enough personality um, you know, because of their age, to 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 to, to you know to stand firm and and to kind of be on the lookout for why you know they are being targeted, and it's 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 heartbreaking to watch. Um, the the good news is that we have come a long way since I first was elected, and we have seen a change in culture through the you know state's attorney's offices to the bench to the state legislature, even understanding what human trafficking is. So this is the first year we are implementing a pilot because what we saw was that um, when identifying victims of human trafficking, there were individuals that needed. Um, all kinds of social services and wraparound services, and we are creating this safe harbor uh, program. It's going to be in uh, two counties, Washington County and Baltimore counties. Mm-hmm. Um, and we started there because those counties had already uh, lo- had already allocated local funds towards programs like that. So the state's going to be able to part to kind of complement what the local localities are doing, mm-hmm. and hopefully, we'll expand to um, the whole state. And how long is the pilot going on for? Is it a year or is it beyond that? Right now we have it in for two years, I believe, mm-hmm. and uh, with no sunset. So we just have to uh, bring it back and just say, you know, we'd like to extend it. Oh, cool. I, I've said before on the podcast, and I'm ashamed of it, but I also feel the need to put it out there that up until recently, like, I didn't realize human trafficking was like a real thing. Like, I want watch Law and Order and see and I'm like oh this happens like this is prominent and it was my husband who was like yeah so like it's definitely like when I see certain businesses and like 
I also learned about it from the licensing of massage parlors and all that. Like that's a prevention of human trafficking. So it's definitely changed kind of my behaviors. So I'm hoping that when I when I say like I didn't know this was a thing because yeah. up until recently I haven't heard it being openly talked about. Absolutely. And I, yeah. and I think it's a good thing that we're openly talking about it because Sometimes people don't see what's right in front of their face. Exactly. So it's also nice that there's legislation coming to help these people. Yeah. Thanks for thanks for mm. saying that. And I can't tell you, you are not alone. And you know, and education has nothing to do with it. I and mean, we've had, and again, it's we even have judges that you know refer to victims of human trafficking and that are being charged with prostitution as, you know, just basically these, these you know, they're, that they're entrepreneurs and yeah. they're, that they're selling their bodies for these reasons. Yeah. Um, and with the opioid crisis, we have seen that survival sex has become way more prominent in our communities. Um, and, you know, not to say that, you know, when we had, uh, you know, large amounts of communities, you know, dying because of cocaine and crack cocaine, a lot of those things were happening. And But now there's a shift in the way that we're looking at, at mm-hmm. these issues. Um, and we're trying to with the human trafficking bills, we're trying to someone that has a you know has prior convictions for prostitution. A lot of times, they're being coerced into doing other criminal acts mm-hmm. by their pimps. So mm-hmm. things like you know petty theft or cashing bad checks or um, drug possession. So we, we want to if we really want to rehabilitate um, these individuals and allow them to restart their lives, um, you know, so that they can contribute contribute economically to to their communities. We have to make sure that we're actually cleaning their slates completely. Mm-hmm. Um, because not, it doesn't help that you just get rid of the prostitution charges when they have all these other right. you know, charges that went along with it. Oh, understood. And when it comes to human trafficking, how are the laws trying uh, striving to keep up with technology these days? That's actually a great point. We have brought it up time and time again um, with the so the, the state agency that deals with kind of the data tracking of um, you know, the crimes and, and then what the state responses has been. It's the, uh, it's, it's GOCAP. It stands for Government Office for Crime Control. We have spoken to GOCAP on um, what, are, what is the state doing to, you know, keep up with recruitment online and Craigslist. Um, and the reality is that we're not keeping up. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's really, really hard. Um, a lot of the, I mean, we don't have at the state level, we don't have really the jurisdiction over kind of these telecommunication type laws that come mm-hmm. from Capitol Hill. So, um, but I do see an interest from the state um, and from that state agency, and we're definitely looking into whatever the state can do um, to prohibit, you know, some of the recruitment that happens um, on these websites. Uh, we will do. I mean, we can. We've been able to put laws on the books that would penalize. But that's still that's the after that's you know yeah. that's a response to not the prevention of. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are I you know I, I don't remember all of them, but we have increased um, we have increased the, the criminal penalties for recruitment online and also recruitment of youth as mm-hmm. well. And then if a Montgomery County citizen sees a problem in their day to day life and thinks it might be something around which legislation could be built, what is the process that the person should go through to begin that process? So I think. This year, at um, the Alyssa's and I went to the first M-Law meeting where everyone came up and presented their bills and there were, it was standing room only and, and there were a few people who said, this wasn't my idea. This was a constituent who came to my office mm-hmm. and, you know, we, we worked through. So how, it, you know, if one of your constituents is like, hey, I have an issue, like how how would they get in touch with you or how would they start that process? That's an excellent, excellent question. 
the number one thing I would do is I would say is as legislators, we're always, I'm always thrilled to hear from, from the community. I'm always he thrilled to hear from constituents, especially if a lot of times it's someone who is already working in that field or, mm -hmm. you know, it's, they'll say this personally happened to me. So they're personally motivated to do the research or to do the homework behind it. Mm -hmm. So I think the most effective way for you to bring, you know, a piece of legislation to an end of, to a legislator would be you know, make sure that you, it's not just an idea that just came out of nowhere. I mean, mm -hmm. you, you want to do a little due, due diligence. Mm -hmm. A lot of times states have already done it. If you want to come up and say how many states have done it, this, or if maybe this is a part of a national campaign. Mm -hmm. um, and if it's something that it's, you know, it was really truly your idea, um, that's great. Uh, try to find the academic, you know, the academic background, the statistics mm -hmm. that make sense. Because one of the things that we don't want to do as legislators is legislate on emotion. Um, Sometimes emotion is good to tell mm -hmm. the story, um, but you know I think public policy, sound public policy, is based on the competition of good ideas. And so a lot of times, you know, what may seem as a good idea, if we don't vet through it, there may be unintended consequences. Mm -hmm. So um, the best way to communicate with us is to reach out to our offices, send us an email, mm -hmm. call us on the phone, find us on uh, Facebook. And all of the above. Mm -hmm. If you can personally go into, you know, into, you know, meet with those individuals, I would say, not. I mean, if it's if you're meeting them, if you're meeting them during session, it's yeah. too late. I, yeah. I would say, you know, give give us a chance to uh, recuperate after session. Mm -hmm. So like, you know, and then and reach out maybe like June or July. Talking for Maryland, since we're you know we're in sessions from January to April, um, we're exhausted. You know, during session. Um, even on the weekends, I mean, it's you know it's really hard and during re-election time, but you know I am always thrilled to hear f f good ideas um, because that's the only way that I can stay on top of what's actually happening to to mm -hmm. our communities. Yeah, that's great. And the one thing I, we've said before is we get alerts from MLaw, and MLaw is always like, please email the Judiciary Committee. And I've sent those emails like I just because sometimes I just can't call like yeah. you know because. When you're talking about federal legislators, like it's best to call their offices, um, or everyone tells you that. But when I have sent emails to legislators, like I just copy paste, like I actually get like responses, like whether it's a staffer, and in some cases it's been like the actual legislator saying, "Oh, thank you." Like, but so I, I think yeah, you know that you just said that, and then experience like we like to encourage our listeners, like just reach out, like they're listening, like you know it's. It's a local. It's a it's a tight knit community. Like you can make a difference. Absolutely. Because I know a lot of people who are very like, especially after this past week, very disheartened with things. And it's like, no, talk to the people. It's good. <laughs> At our racial justice panel, you talked about sexual harassment in Annapolis. Um, is there a way to assure that women who are in office and young women and girls who may run for office someday that they will be legally protected in the workplace? And how can we support that effort? Um, I think we've seen a lot of um, tra uh, traffic lately of that, like Ariana Kelly had a uh, article in the Washington Post and there, it seems like there's some work being done in Annapolis to combat the sexual harassment. No, absolutely. Thanks for that question. And um, Delia Ariana Kelly has been a champion on this issue. She has really uh, created this freedom for the rest of us, to be honest with you, to be able to also speak out. Because I can tell you, when, when I was elected, and still now, I mean, I really have been very strategic about the stories that I've, been, that I've shared. 
Um, also, understanding that, you know, I am a young elected, you know, young woman in the legislature. I am navigating through that process, trying to gain credibility while also camaraderie among my colleagues and peers. So, if, you know, all of a sudden I start to, mm-hmm. you know, call, call out names, that individual could be very well the, the person who gets to decide whether my bill is, is yeah. viable or not. So, I, at one point I did decide that, you know, there are different roles Legislatively, there are roles for advocates, there are roles for the media, there are roles for you know the human story to be told, and there's my role as, leg- as a legislator, and that is to be able to leverage my relationships to be so, so, so that we can protect other women. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you brought up a really good issue, and that is, as elected officials, we are not employed by anybody. Mm-hmm. So the normal employment and labor laws um, that protect against sexual harassment do not apply to us. So um, Delegate Kelly convened um, a work group, uh, a bipartisan work group, and we had men and women, and senators and delegates, um, and it was chaired by Carol Krim from uh, Frederick and uh, Delegate Fraser Hidalgo from District 15. Um, and you know, and there was all there was another ad hoc group that I mean we've been working on this for two years, mm-hmm. and only after the Me Too movement did it really kind of, um, you know, start getting the attention that it deserves. And honestly, and that I also you know, and that goes with that goes also to the papers and you know the journal the journalists who now all of a sudden have an interest in writing about mm-hmm. our, our work. So you know what. God bless them. That's great. I'm glad yeah. that, that there's finally attention uh, being drawn to this issue. But, you know, the sexual harassment culture is rampant, and anyone who says that it is not um, are just blinded by it, perhaps. And something that um, I have uh, been become aware of, and that is some of the women that were ele- that, you know, that have been there for years, um, they were elected later on in life, so they were elected elected you know when you know when they were forties or, or mm-hmm. uh, they're in their forties or, or or older. Whereas there's you know with my class and then the class after me, there's there have been, there have been some appointments after me. Um, you see that there's like younger and younger women like with you know between the like ages twenty and thirty five and mm-hmm. so um, twenty five and thirty five and so youth and you know and and our gender has a lot to do with our vulnerability and so. Um, you know, we have uh, among our recommendations. Um, you know, we address the vulnerability of all all individuals in the state house, from you know from the employees um, to interns to staff members to the elected body in general. Um, and we have worked with national experts um, that were able to create a similar structure in the Massachusetts, New York, and California legislatures. Um, and what we heard time and time again um, that really worked in those in those state uh, state legislative bodies was that, that they had the buy-in from leadership. And mm-hmm. so it's really important. Um, and that's exactly what we're recommending. Mm-hmm. And we need um, you know the chair, the chairman and cha- you know chairman and, and vice chairman of every committee, um, including the pres- presiding officers, to be a part of this process. Mm-hmm. Um, and so with that, you know, there's going to be training for you know what do you do when someone comes to you and they say, you know, this happened to me. Uh, I would like to remain anonymous. Um, and you know, and the whole pro- and creating that whole process, mm-hmm. um, and then also creating a process for accountability. Um, Creating a process uh, with com- for confidentiality and bystander inter- intervention is are they're all critical. Mm-hmm. Oh, thank you. Um, and now, 
upcoming on Monday, you've been doing a women's rally in Annapolis since before the Women's March in 2017. So what made you start and what makes you keep organizing the event? Thank you so much for that question. We started rallying um, our first year. This was one of my first years as an elected uh, legislator. And I just noticed that, you know, when I talked to my colleagues about uh, rape and sexual assault on campuses, that there was a clear kind of language barrier where, you know, a lot of my colleagues, because of just not being exposed to the issue, mm -hmm. they were quick to make the stereotypical um, kind of arguments. Well, what are you going to do with a disgruntled girlfriend? What do you, you know, women lie. And because that's such a high percentage, <laughs> right? <laughs> so I just thought, you know, this is going to be, this is going to take a lot of work. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's going to take an educational campaign. It's going to take, you know, just a lot of, like, a lot, we need to draw attention to this. So we started rallying a around um, that issue, in particular, sexual assault and rape on campus. Um, that this was in, tw in 2016, um, sorry, 2015. 2016, we kind of opened it up to other women's issues, not mm -hmm. just issues around violence against women. Mm -hmm. And then after the election happened and, you know, and the uh, Women's March in Washington, we just saw an incredible, incredible amount of interest from um, Marylanders across the state. Mm -hmm. Across the state, we were getting postcards, we were getting emails, and, th and they were just saying, Delegate Morales, thank you for putting this this together, and you're right, you know, violence against women is still a huge priority because it's still a huge problem, mm -hmm. um, but there are other, you know, other issues that we need to, as women, work together to make sure that, you know, we're, equ you know, we're equal, we're leveling the playing field for women economically, um, in the workplace, you know, the family structure, going from, you know, issues regarding, regarding uh, childcare subsidies, I mean, mm -hmm. these are all issues that really kind of um, could block the economic potential of 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 a woman of mm -hmm. a, when she reaches motherhood yeah yeah and we we've talked about that too that a lot of these issues and i think i've said recently because we uh, eb2 and i went to a candidate forum for district six for john delaney's seat and my comment was that a lot of the legislators on the panel the <sighs> it would be nice if they framed it as an economic issue. Like this isn't just a woman's issue, it's an economic issue. And like what you just said, like it blocks a woman's economic potential if these things are not open to them. So we were also talking about that. I got a little flustered. I was like, well good. It's just like, exactly. <laughs> it's a money thing. Like yeah. Yeah. everybody gets up and out arms about money. Like we should get up in arms about women and their money. Like Absolutely. women need to, be able to move forward in the economic landscape, but yes. So we have we have four different sections for our women's rally. We have the economic security uh, portion. We have the healthy working families. We have reproductive justice, and we have violence against women. Mm -hmm. And we I created this space because while there is a value for the women's caucus, and I love the women's caucus, mm -hmm. I sit on the, on the I'm the chair for the violence against women subcommittee. That that women's caucus, it's a bipartisan mm -hmm. group, and so a lot of the bills that have to do with, you know, family family leave and mm -hmm. the child support, the child care subsidy, anything that has to do with like labor trafficking and things that a lot of our conservative and more you know Republican colleagues, they are not 
so you know they're not a fan of right then those bills automatically get kind of rejected mm-hmm. and so I created a space where you know all these other bills that fall on these other areas that can promote the livelihood of women in general um, that we could actually rally behind that and it's open to anyone um, you know I've in terms of sponsorship this year we have less politicians speaking and more kind of getting the advocates and just personal mm-hmm. stories out there um, also because it's an election year so I yeah. had a bunch of folks from I mean every governor's race you know on the Democrats on the yeah. Democratic ticket uh, to folks running for Congress and you know and so people they acknowledge that this is an important space so I you know I just applaud all the women that made it out last year on a, on a you know a chilly Monday night um, men and women we had wonderful allies and also I, it's also to showcase the intersectionality of what it is to be a woman mm-hmm. so we have we, we have um, leaders from the, the trans community from the LGBT community mm-hmm. um, every minority is going to be almost every minority obviously I, I wish I could have uh, had every minority you know under the rain, the rainbow to be uh, represented we have a, a, a an, an impressive list of featured speakers including Monica Ramirez from the Time's Up movement. Um, we have Brittany Oliver, who is, a, is the executive director and founder of an organization called Not Without Black Women. We have an individual from um, the Native American mm-hmm. um, community, uh, uh, leaders from the, the trans community. I mean, it's really, I, I'm just really proud of what we've been able to pull together for this year. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm excited about it. Um, I, I unfortunately have a family thing and I can't go, but we've been publicizing it with the chapter and we've been talking about it. So I hope we send you a really good turnout from our side. Um, and then just from the, the rally, how do you think rallies and protests can supplement concrete action people take, like donating money, lobbyists, calling representatives? Like, just give people an idea, like, What's so great about these things for those of you who maybe have not not been to the women's march or your women's rally? That's an excellent question, and that's why when people are leave the rally, they're going to leave with a handout mm-hmm. with a comprehensive list of pro women legislation with hearing dates. So I and I have heard you know kind of that the argument of well, what's the point of protesting? You know, what's the point? The point is. People listen when there are 500 women or mm-hmm. 500, you know, allied folks talking about an issue, and and the, our issue here are, you know, we need to equal the playing field for women. Period. Our rights are are equal. Period. And so when you have at the same time you have legislators that are standing right there with you, um, and, but also there are legislators that um, are have been working on bills, for example, that may have taken 10 years, like like the um, like House Bill One from this year was the termination of parental rights of rapists. That literally took 10 years to pass. Um, and so I think that, you know, as leadership and individuals that are sitting in power have been seeing kind of, you know, this national narrative around women's rights and just, you know, just equal, equal leveling the, the playing field for women, Suddenly they're starting to pay. They're starting to pay attention. Oh, that bill has come in front of me. How many times now? And I'm mm-hmm. actually gonna sit here and read and mm-hmm. not just go along with what the counter arguments have been. Right. And that one, I remember, it made national news. Like it made national news because this is Maryland, and if you live outside of Maryland, you have a vision of Maryland that is the bluest state in the world, even though we know it's it's kind of kind of spotty. 
but it made national news. It was like, why is Maryland one of the seven states who still has this? And I remember like, oh, come on, come on, guys. And this is when I was first starting to be like locally politically conscious for Maryland. And I was like, wait, nine times, nine times no one voted on this. And I remember we had the conversation like, we're just, we're going to harass people. Like we're going to take, we're going to take the initiative and we're going to write our legislators and do whatever. And I think a lot of people had that same reaction. Like I know friends of mine who live in Hartford County and they were like, wait, wait, this, this is a thing. It's a thing. Like, yeah, it's a thing. It's a thing. So it, it brought the numbers around it, I think, brought consciousness to a lot of people. Absolutely, and the the the, the framework, the power, the the power structures had created kind of a one pro woman, like one bill per year oh. through certain committees. <laughs> so there was basically a, a a quota for how many bills were allowed to be passed and legislated. But now that we have, again, we have you know, this national narrative and then communities getting together to work on these issues and bring attention to them, then all of a sudden now, you know, legislators are now more willing to, to listen and act. So that is uh, food for thought for people who think these things don't do anything. Because for some, if someone is listening who's never gone, like aside from everything you just said, like it's exciting. Like you feel like, you feel like this giant, like I'm gonna use the word sisterhood, but you know, personhood. But you just, it's exciting and you leave just like invigorated to do something and you wanna do something. And, and that's great that you're giving them a handout with hearing dates so then people know like, this is when I need to call, this is when I need to email. And I think that's just that's just wonderful. I'm so excited. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for that because it's taken a it's taken a lot of work, a lot of sleepless nights. Um, but I am right there with you. I think last year, I mean, we had over 450 Marylanders. Hopefully, this time we'll even top that. And um, I, my my team, my staff is really really excited. Yeah. Thank you. Are there are there races to watch in Maryland and places where people who care about women's rights can donate slash volunteer to swing a close race in favor of someone who shares. Their values. Yes, there are. Um, there's. Uh, I would. I would look at Anne Arundel County. We have uh, some communities that overwhelmingly voted for Trump and for Hogan, and so there are some races that are really important to look look at. Um, Sarah Elfrith is one of them. She's running for Senate, mm-hmm. um, and she's a close friend of mine. Um, Eve Horowitz is another one. Um, there, I just heard that there's a second woman that just jumped into that race so I don't want to say you know right. one or the other but you know I just these are just races that I know of and here in Montgomery County just make sure that you look at seats that were that are taken by, that are where the incumbent is a woman mm-hmm. um, because there are targets on our backs I'm one of them I have eight men running against me um, and you know being a woman of color a lot of times you know the establishment isn't necessarily always there with you mm-hmm. um, and the Democratic Party because Montgomery County is so blue mm-hmm. we're pretty much replaceable to them they mm-hmm. don't so they're not really going to necessarily put any dollars into our races so if you know if anything that I've spoken to you about like you know had your your heart racing a little bit faster I I would love to have your support mm-hmm. volunteering um, and you can also reach out to me to see if anybody where you are locally needs any help okay yeah no good to know thank you um, so anything else you want to cover before we No, end? that's exactly what I was I wanted to address remember our primary is coming up in June mm-hmm. so right after session um, we are gonna be right into we're gonna go jump right into re-election mm-hmm. mode um, and 
you know, like a lot of people, I have a second job, so it's going to yeah. be very, very challenging. But you know, I, I'm proud of the track record that I have. Uh, we've been working hard on on, on issues, you know, regarding um, women and communities of color, vulnerable communities, working people, millennials, um, promoting home ownership, et cetera. Um, and I would just really encourage folks to to stay engaged. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for doing this. Um, good luck on Monday. I hope you get a phenomenal turnout, and I'm sure we will speak to you very soon. Thank you so much. Thank you to Marseille for coming on the podcast. Um, that was a great interview, and we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye.